right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Colossians chapter 1 is where you need to go. Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll find one around you somewhere in the pew rack close by or scoot over close to someone who has a Bible open so you can study, follow along as we study God's Word together this morning. Over the last couple of weeks, we have looked closely at this amazing passage in Colossians chapter 1, an amazing passage that carefully and memorably lifts Jesus up as supreme and sufficient. It's been good stuff over the last couple of weeks and fun to preach, honestly. Uh, we followed the pattern that a number of scholars follow by breaking that section 15 to 20 into two parts. Verses 15 to 17 speak of Jesus as Lord of creation. And verses 18 to 20 speak of Jesus as Lord of redemption. So we took a couple of weeks and talked about that and Talk to you about how carefully this passage is structured, how carefully it's written, how it's written in such a way that it's easy to remember. And I challenged you to memorize this sec- this section, 15 to 20. And uh, I asked for volunteers last week to stand up and declare it, and nobody was ready to do that. And um, I told you that this week I was just going to stand here till someone was ready. And and luckily for the rest of you, Reed Roper caught me before the service. And he said, hey, I'm ready to do it. I've got the verses down. I'm ready to stand and deliver. He said, I've been practicing all week. It takes 50 seconds. (laughs) Give or take. (laughs) He said, I've got a little bit of a cold, so I sound extra manly today, uh, which is good when you're ready to stand and deliver. So, Reed, come on up. I didn't tell him he was going to have to come up here to do it, but... So, so Reed has taken the heat off of the rest of you, uh, at least as far as coming up here to, to stand and deliver. But I hope that you've spent some time over the last couple of weeks committing this great passage that really exalts the Lord Jesus Christ um, to memory. So let it rip, Reed. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Colossians 1, 15 and 20. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it does my heart good on so many levels, Reed. Thank you uh, for being bold. Thank you for being willing. Uh, thank you for uh, what I know to be a discipline in your life of Scripture memory. Like what you need to know about Reed is he doesn't just have Colossians 1, 15 to 20 committed to memory. Um, he may have the entire book of Galatians committed to memory at this point. Close? No. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. So that is a passage that is good for us to, to put deep in our brains and deep into our hearts so that we will be able to worship Jesus by, by knowing who he is. The main application we made from last week had to do with that one line that says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We talked about the supremacy of Jesus in all things and then asked this question, is Jesus first in everything in your life? Is Jesus first in everything in your life? And it's kind of a trick question because he is. 
Like, I'll answer the question for you. He is first in everything in your life. But you need to live in such a way that it is clear that he is first in everything in your life. And that was really the application. We want to live like Jesus is first in everything in our lives. So it's been good stuff over the last couple of weeks. It's good stuff again today as we consider the impact of the gospel in the life of a believer. The text this week breaks into three parts pretty easily. Um, Richard Lucas labels these parts the following way. He says, verse 21 speaks of what we once were, what you once were. Verse 22 speaks of where you now stand, where you now stand. And verse 23 speaks of how you must go on. And before we even dive into the text and continue some introductory remarks, I want to tell you that this is written to believers. The the book of Colossians is written to believers in Jesus Christ. And I want to preach this section of Colossians um, to believers in Jesus Christ. Like when we get together on Sunday mornings, I believe it is primarily a gathering of people who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gathering of the body of Christ to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so I'm going to preach it primarily that way to believers in Jesus. But I recognize, just like Paul would recognize, that there are people listening in, um, in this room even, maybe on the radio or on Facebook or whatever, there are people listening into all this who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who have not been saved by God's grace. And so the things that we are going to celebrate today as who we were and who we are is not true for everybody in the room. In fact, some of you in the room still are hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, alienated from God. But the good news for you today is what has happened in us, the great transformation that God has brought to us by his grace, he can bring to you today. That in the same way it all changed for us on a certain day, it can change for you today as you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You can celebrate this great truth that we'll look at today. So read with me in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 to 23, that's what we're going to study today. Uh, It would be great for you to commit this to memory too, um, but I won't put anyone on the spot next week, okay? Colossians 1, 21 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray as we study this text today that you will help us who belong to you to remember who we were who we once were, how we were alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Help us remember that and help us to know who we now are, where we now stand, that you have reconciled us through the death of your son in order to present us before you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Help us to see ourselves as you see us in Christ. And to live accordingly. Father, I pray for your people that we will hold fast to Christ. 
that we will cling to Jesus, that we won't walk away, but that we will persevere in faith to the very end. And God, we pray for folks in the room who, who are not part of the family. They're far from you. They are still alienated and hostile. I pray that you change them the way you changed us today for the sake of their eternal good and for your eternal glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, there are three parts of the text. Verse 21 is what you once were. It says, and although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. As you read Paul's letters, you see a pretty constant reminder of what life was like before conversion. You see Paul consistently reminding people who they were before they came to know Christ. And sometimes he does this from his own personal perspective. Like he gives his own testimony, like he does in Galatians chapter 1. Look at it on the screen. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul is quick to own his, his old life. He's quick to talk about his old life. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul is always quick to own who he used to be. And he not, does, doesn't just apply this to himself. He applies this generally um, to all who trust in Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You're probably familiar with this text. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul in his writings constantly reflecting on who he was before he met Jesus and who we are before we are converted. And it is good for us in this room today to reflect on this. It's good for us to reflect on the old life so that we will appreciate the grace of God and the change that he has brought into our lives. It's good for us to remember who we were so that we'll appreciate who we are now. What an indescribable gift he has given to us. What a life-changing experience we have had. It's good for us to reflect on this so that we'll appreciate God's grace. It's good for us to reflect on this so that we will understand the condition of our lost neighbor and the lost nations. It's good for us to remember who we were so that we can look at our neighbors rightly and know that's who they are. They are hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, alienated from God. It's good for us to reflect on this so that we will have a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel with those who are lost and who are dead in their trespasses and sins. So what I am advocating today is not a reflection on the old life that paralyzes you and takes you back to that, but a reflection on the old life that helps you appreciate where you are now and gives you a sense of urgency about preaching the good news that changed you to the people around you. Notice the language that Paul uses here to describe the unregenerate, the unsaved, the lost person who is without Christ. 
And remember, this is who you were before Jesus stepped in. He uses three descriptions. First, he says, you were alienated. This word means to be estranged or cut off or separated. One scholar says, before their reconciliation, the Colossians were completely estranged from God. And that is not just true for the Colossian believers, that is true for every believer. Before your conversion, you were completely estranged from God. It's important to remember that the majority of the audience to whom Paul is writing come from a Gentile background in Colossae. They are not descendants of Abraham. They are not those who have received the covenants and the promises. They were not worshipers of Yahweh. They were pagan idolaters. And as Gentiles, they were alienated from the promises of God. They were alienated from the covenants. They were alienated from the people of God. And this is on display no more clearly than at the temple complex, which essentially had a huge do not enter sign for all kinds of people, particularly for Gentiles. They were only allowed to come into the very most outer court, and they couldn't move any closer to the center where God dwelt. In fact, Gentiles could only come so far, and then Jewish people could come a little bit further, but then Jewish women could only go so far, and the men could go a little further, and then beyond that, only the priests could go so far, and then beyond that, only the high priest could go so far once a year, and then not without blood. So, so the whole temple complex under which people worship God for a thousand years or more, it was all set up to show the estrangement between God and man, the separation between God and man. And here he's saying that that's the case. But I want you to know that it was not ultimately because of their Gentileness that they were alienated from God, but rather it was ultimately because of their sinfulness that they were alienated from God. It wasn't just because they had a Gentile background. It was, it was because they were sinners in their hearts for all people. All people, whether they grow up in a Gentile house or a Jewish house, are alienated from God because of their sin. This is a first truth of the gospel, that God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely righteous and he is absolutely just. And man is sinful to his very core. We are radically depraved, and we are alienated from God because of his, sin, his righteousness and our sinfulness. There is a separation there that we cannot overcome. Man, apart from Christ, is alienated from God, regardless of his background, because of his sinful heart. He says, you were alienated. It may be helpful to think of this alienation as positional separation because of your sin. But this separation is not just positional, it is also practical. He goes on and says, not only were you alienated, you were hostile in mind. The word there that's translated hostile in New American Standard can also be translated hateful. One scholar says unbelievers are not only alienated from God by condition, they are also hateful of God by attitude. So it's not just about a positional thing. And it's not just passive, this separation from God. We are active in our separation from God. It's not as if you were neutral toward God before your conversion. You were not indifferent toward God before your conversion. You were hostile toward Him. You were hateful of Him. Now, you might not have articulated in that way. You might not articulated that you hated God. But that's the truth. Before you came to know 
him through his son Jesus Christ. Before he changed your heart, you hated God. It's maybe hard, especially for those of you who grew up in the church, who were converted at a young age to grasp, but it is a biblical truth that natural man, apart from Christ, is hostile toward God, hateful toward God. And not only that, he goes on and says, you were engaged in evil deeds. So it's not just a position, and it's not just a frame of mind, it's not just something in your head, it is active, you were active in your sinning. You were high-handed and active in your rebellion against God. You were not just alienated from God in theory. You were alienated from God in your practice. We uh, sang a song last week that says, I was born as a sinner. Liked it more than I think I should. It's the next line. And I almost want to adjust that and say, liked it more than I should. (laughs) Not just than I think I should. But before you came to know Jesus Christ, you loved sinning. Don't, you don't agree with that? Before you came to know Jesus Christ, you loved your sin. You served yourself. You served Satan. And you loved your sin. You were engaged in evil deeds. Galatians chapter 5 talks about those evil deeds. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Another place in scripture you could argue that anything that is done apart from faith is sin. My point is this. You were active in your sinfulness. You were active in your rebellion against God. You were a participant in the separation between holy God and sinful man. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. This is who you were. And I'm inviting you in this moment to reflect on this. To remember the old life, what my friend calls the dead life. Remember that. Go back there and think about that. Don't get paralyzed there. Don't get stuck there. And don't let Satan whisper accusations against you in that moment. But go back there and remember it because we're headed somewhere good in just a minute. And that someplace good will be even better when you really grasp where you came from and who you once were. So reflect on who you were. But the reality is in this room, some of you are still there. Some of you are alienated from God hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That is not who you were. That is who you are. You love your sin and you hate God and you are separated from him. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm not saying that to be hateful. I'm I'm saying that because I love you. Because the first step in being reconciled to God is realizing you're at odds with God. An old song that's a favorite for many of us in this room says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that taught me about my sin and my separation from God. It was grace that taught me about his holiness and my sinfulness and the great chasm that was between me and God. That's a gracious thing. If God were to teach you that today, if in this moment he were to convict you of your sin and break you and teach you your unrighteousness so that you feel like a worm, that would be the most gracious thing that he could do to you today because it's only the worm who knows he's a worm that can be redeemed. If you think you're good, if you think you're naturally good, if you think you came out of the womb good, you're wrong. Natural man is alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and maybe that's you in this room today. I can tell you this, it's the truth for a lot of people in the world today. Your lost neighbor, the lost nations, are 
alienated from God, are hostile in mind, are engaged in evil deeds. Under God's wrath, children of wrath, even as the rest, as Paul taught us in Ephesians chapter 2. There is no neutral ground. There's no such thing as a difference toward God. There's no such thing as an innocent lost person. Man is sinful. But there is hope. Look at the next verse. Verse 22 is golden, isn't it? Starts with the best word, yet, or but. There's better news. This little word is a conjunction that connects two clauses, but shows a strong contrast between what just happened and what is to come. There is hope. In fact, this whole passage, verse 22, drips with hope. Every word of the first part of this verse, he says, yet he has now, has now reconciled you. Has now reconciled you. Even though everything is true in verse 21, it's not the end of the story. There is hope for those who are alienated from God. There is hope for those who are hostile in mind. There is hope for those who are engaged in evil deeds because he reconciles sinners to himself. This is glorious good news. Look at it, verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let's just delight for a second in the word reconciled. It's not, it's not just reconcile. It's in the past tense, reconciled. This is great news. John MacArthur says this of the word. He says the word reconcile is one of the most significant and descriptive terms in all of Scripture. It is one of five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation in Christ, along with justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. Reconciled. The word literally means to change or exchange. It means to change from being at war with God to being at peace with God. It means to be changed from being an enemy of God who hates God to being a friend of God. This particular form of the Greek word that's used in this verse has a prefix attached to it that kicks it up a notch. It's like saying super reconciled, mega reconciled. In other words, fully reconciled. The word is used kind of on its own a number of times in the New Testament, but it's only used with this prefix three times in the New Testament. He is communicating in this that the reconciliation that is yours, if you are in Christ, is lacking nothing. You're not like part of the way reconciled. You're not like part of the way changed. If you are in Christ, you are fully, completely, 100% reconciled to God. That's good news. Notice in the text that it is God who does the reconciling. It says, he has now reconciled you. He has now reconciled you. You don't have it in you to be reconciled to God. You can't reconcile yourself to God, but he has done what it takes to reconcile you to himself. He has done the work. Notice also that the reconciliation comes through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. The wages of sin, the Bible teaches clearly, is death. And Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus did not deserve to die because he had never sinned. He was tempted in every way like we are and yet without sin. Jesus did not deserve to die and yet he died. He took our place. We sang a song last week that has a line in it that gets me every time. It says, it was my death you died. And that is the truth of the gospel. 
The death that Jesus died was not his to die. It was yours. It was mine. Jesus died our death as our substitute. The theological word for this is propitiation. Propitiation, where the wrath of God against our sin was satisfied in the death of Jesus. He took the punishment that we deserve. How are we, sinful men, reconciled to a holy God? Only through the death of Jesus Christ. Someone's got to die. Sin must be punished. And the glorious gospel is that Jesus stepped in and took the punishment so that you could be reconciled to God. So that God's wrath would be satisfied and he could look on you with favor. Notice God does the reconciling. Notice that he does the reconciling through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Notice that it is fully accomplished. There's a redundancy in the language at the beginning of this text that is meant to emphasize that Jesus did not partially accomplish reconciliation. He didn't just make it possible or theoretical or potential. Jesus died to reconcile you to God. Fully reconciled you to God. There's not something left out. There's not something for you to fill up. Jesus paid it all. We sing that sometimes. Jesus paid it all. You know what he said on the cross as he died for your sins? It's finished. It's finished. There's nothing left. The work is done. He has now reconciled you to God. And notice also in the text that there is purpose in the reconciliation. It says... He's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You couldn't possibly make yourself holy and blameless and beyond reproach, could you? No, because you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, alienated from God. You couldn't make yourself this way, but he has made you this way. In the last verse, we learned that before our conversion, we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Here, we learn the opposite truth of this, which is glorious, that when we are saved by grace through faith, we get a whole new identity. We are holy. If you are in Christ, you are holy. That is good stuff. That word means separated from sin and set apart to God. If you are in Christ, you are holy. He has reconciled you to present you before him holy. So he looks at you and he says, holy. And not only that, he says, blameless. This gets better, doesn't it? He says blameless. That word means without blemish. It's the same word that is used to refer to those sacrifices that were made in the old covenant of the spotless lamb. It's the same language that's used of Jesus, who was the Lamb of God. It's the same language. So when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he says, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is the third truth. This word, beyond reproach, means not only that we're without blemish, but also that no one can bring a charge against us. Like, let's smile a little bit when we talk about this, right? When I think about my old life, I want to weep. When I think about how alienated I was from God, how hateful I was toward God, and how engaged I was in evil deeds, it makes me want to cry. It fills me with shame. But that's not who I am anymore. 
It's not my identity anymore. I got a whole new identity. The old is gone. Look, new has come. And the new thing, the new man, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Who could bring a charge against me? Look at what Romans, look at what Paul says in Romans. Turn there, chapter 8. This is more than I could put on the screen today. And I, want, I really want you to turn there. I don't hear any pages. It's like the best sound for a preacher when you turn the page. But the worst sound is when you don't. And I, I want to read this to you, and I want you to catch a little. If you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, I want you to get that this is who you are. This is your identity now. It says this, uh, verse 31, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And let me tell you, if, if you're in Christ, he's for you. He's for you. Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God is justified, who could possibly bring a charge against you? Who is greater than God who could bring a charge against you? No one. No one. Read on. Who could bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? If God is justified, who in the world could possibly condemn you? If he has declared you holy, who could say that you're not? If he has declared you blameless, who could say that you're not? Why? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered to be sheep, sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, those, those promises are yours. And the promises of Colossians 1, the new identity that is given to you in Christ, he reconciled you in order to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is who you are in Christ. And I'm going to invite you today to own that. And this is, this is what I need to hear today. Own that identity. Own the identity that in Christ you are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Come to see yourself this way because this is how God sees you in Christ. You are not any longer alienated. You're not any longer hostile in mind. You're not any longer engaged in evil deeds. You are now holy, blameless, and beyond reproach if you are in Christ. So preach this to yourself. You've got to preach this to yourself because the enemy is an accuser who will constantly be saying, you're not holy, you're not blameless, you're not beyond reproach. He will accuse you. That's part of what he does. He did this to me in a big way on my way here last weekend. I'm just whispering in my ear, you've got no business to stand up and preach to those people this week. And what I need to say to him is, you know, on the one hand, you're right. But God has redeemed me. 
He's reconciled me. He's taken all that that was against me and removed it as far as the east is from the west. And when he looks at me, he says, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach because he sees his son covering me. This is a new identity that I've got to preach to myself. And not only own it and not only preach it to yourself, but we've got to live it out practically. It doesn't make a lot of sense to kind of own internally this new identity and then live like the rest of the world. Like, like if I'm going to say I am holy, I am blameless, I am beyond reproach, then I need to live in a way that makes that make a little bit of sense at least, right? I don't want to, it would be hypocritical of me to stand up and say I am holy, I am blameless, I am beyond reproach and then live like the rest of the world. But he's made me new and so I'll live like a new man, Right? I'll put off the old and put on the new and live that way. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. If you're not, this is who you can be. This is who you can be today. He can declare you today holy, blameless, beyond reproach. That's amazing truth. And we need to recognize that when we look out at the lost world, this is who they can be. Paul, when he, when he reflects on this, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. Now I'm holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I think about my life, I'm amazed at God's grace, and that should give me confidence to go preach to anybody in the world because his grace is sufficient. His grace is able to change anyone you know. But read on, verse 23. Verse 23 starts with a word that's a little more troubling than verse 22 started with, if. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So before we get too deep into this text, I just want to go ahead and make the pastoral application. Listen to me here. You may get lost in a minute, but listen to me here. If you are in Christ... If you have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, if you are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then go on with him. Stay with him. Stick with him. Continue in the faith. To say it negatively, don't move away. Don't walk away. Don't turn away but rather endure and persevere in the faith. This is what Paul wanted for the people of Colossae. And this is what I want for you believers. Like, let's rejoice that we are not any longer who we are today. That he's made us new. But let's go on trusting in Christ. Let's go on living for him. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't look somewhere else. Don't walk away. Keep the faith, stick with Jesus, cling to him. That's the application of this part. There's not hope anywhere else. Stick with Jesus. Now, the doctrinal truth that we're hitting on when we talk about this is called the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. And perseverance of the saints is not a simple matter. Unfortunately, in Baptist life, it's been boiled down to a cliché I don't think does the doctrine justice. To say once saved, always saved is true, but inadequate. Like if that, if that is all you understand about perseverance of the saints and eternal security, we need to think a little deeper than that. 
David Platt came along a few years ago and said, we should rather say, if saved, always saved. Well, that's better, but I still think it falls short of everything that is captured biblically, and it may still be a little too simple. The truths that we see in Scripture are this. All true believers will endure to the end. True believers will keep the faith. True believers will not walk away. And only those who endure to the end will be saved. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. And they only endure because of God's power in them. Like, I'm not, I'm not turning this into you, you accomplish it or you finish it. No, all of this is only happening because of God's power in you. All true believers will endure to the end. They will keep the faith. And only those who endure to the end will be saved. Those two truths go hand in hand. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Similar idea that we see in Colossians chapter 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What's the point there? Hold fast to the word that has been preached to you. Hold fast to the one true gospel that can save you. Don't hold on to it when you're eight years old and then walk away from it for the rest of your life and think you'll go to heaven when you die. Hold on to Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who can save you. Jesus says it himself in Mark chapter 13 like this. He says, you'll be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So this is a call to endurance. I think... I think our tendency in Baptist life sometimes is to claim a doctrine of eternal security, once saved, always saved, and only look at faith in the rearview mirror. Like no real-time active walk with Jesus, no spiritual life or evidence of conversion, but a date written in the front of your Bible. I'm, I'm lovingly trying to tell you if all you've got is a date written in the front of your Bible, I'm at least fearful for you. Walk with Jesus today and every day. Walk with Jesus every moment of your life. John Murray says this about perseverance of the saints. He says, perseverance of the saints reminds us very forcefully that only those who persevere to the end are truly saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this, they whom God hath accepted, this is obviously old language, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that's Jesus, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternal saved. This is making a pastoral call to persevere, to continue in the faith, to have Maybe I'll say it this way, to have a present tense faith. You need to be able to speak of your faith in the present tense. I am believing in Jesus. I am trusting in Jesus. Not just past tense faith, present tense faith. That's what perseverance looks like. As we were talking about this earlier this week, Pastor Dylan helped me see a connection with Sunday school lesson about equipping the saints for the work of service about speaking the truth in love when it comes to these things. He often asks people, how's your relationship with Jesus? How is your relationship with Jesus? That's a great question to consider today. 
How is your relationship with Jesus? How's your present tense relationship with Jesus looking right now? Not just a past tense thing that was 30 years ago. Present tense, are, are you trusting in Jesus? And maybe you need to consider that yourself, like for your own life. Maybe there are some people close to you that you need to ask that question of. Maybe there are people you love that you're concerned about. Like you don't see present tense faith in them. You don't see perseverance in them. You don't see any fruit being born in their lives. Maybe you need to have that hard conversation where you say, man, I'm, I'm concerned about your soul and I love you. How is your relationship with Jesus? And if they start talking about past tense, say, what about today? Let's walk with him today. Let me help you walk with him today. So the question for today is, is this your story? You were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Are you continuing in the faith? Not walking away? Is that your story? If it is, praise the Lord. If you've got a story like that that goes, this is who I was, this is who I am, and I'll keep walking with him for the rest of my life, man, praise the Lord for that. Let's celebrate that. Let's smile about that. Let's rejoice in it. Let's encourage one another in that. Let's praise the Lord for his goodness to us. Let's cling to him. Let's keep telling that story. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, now I can see. I was dead, and now I'm alive, and God did it. Let's tell that story because he's still doing that kind of stuff today. If this is not your story, it can be today. At this point, you've only got one part of the story. You're hostile to God, engaged in evil deeds, and alienated from him. But I'm telling you today, you can have the rest of the story. So repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Receive the gift of salvation. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you are good and this gospel is good. Pray for your people that you will help us to remember who we were before you changed us. That you will help us to know who we are in Christ. Help us to own this new identity that we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That we are fully, completely reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. Help us to know that and own that new identity and continue walking with you for the rest of our lives. Thank God for people who are here who don't, who don't have a full story like that. They, they just are dead. They are alienated. They are hateful toward you and engaged in evil deeds. God, I pray that in the same way you rescued me out of that darkness, that you would rescue them out of that darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of your beloved son by grace as a gift that they do not deserve through faith, not working, but trusting in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll give them trust. I pray that you give them repentance to turn away from sin and to walk with you in righteousness and faithfulness. God, I pray that you'll work now so that you get glory in Christ's name.